your daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. There is some great good news for the Republican Party. I mean, stunning good news, which means that not only will the Republicans have an excellent chance, whoever they nominate, of winning the presidency next time. But also, Republicans are going to have a, a very good chance, bordering on a sure thing, of winning control of the U.S. Senate. Now, there may have been Republican disappointments in the elections that uh, were held on Tuesday, but uh, one of the things I want to talk to you about is one of those races where the Republicans won a seat in the city council in the nation's largest city, that's New York, and they won a seat that hadn't been held by a Republican for about 50 years. I mean, it's just incredible, and it's gotten no attention. The issue? Crime, which is a crucial issue. The other big news for the Republican Party uh, is that uh, Joe Manchin has announced that he is not seeking re-election, but he says he will fight to unite the middle, and his political career isn't over. So what does that mean? Is he running for president? If he is running for president, then... The chances of Joe Biden pulling out a victory against Donald Trump, where he's already running behind in the polls, uh, that's fairly small. And meanwhile, was it good news for the Republican Party in the debate last night? We'll talk about winners and losers. I think overall, frankly, the debate was substantive enough and impressive enough, at least for a few of its participants. They had only had five this time. It was uh, a step forward, and uh, the party looked uh, substantive and good with a number of credible presidential candidates who appeared on that stage. Uh, who were they exactly, and who were the big losers of the debate? We will get into that. We are also going to be speaking about this uh, gigantic news out of the Middle East where Israel has agreed, after being pushed pretty hard by the Biden administration, to a uh, daily pause in the Gaza fighting. This is not a ceasefire. And the IDF is very careful in wanting everyone to understand it's not a ceasefire. So what is it? What is the idea? We'll be talking to the former ambassador of Israel to the United States, who is a uh, an observer in the uh, war cabinet of uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, with whom Ron Dermer, Ron Dermer who's originally a Floridian. No, I didn't speak to him, uh, and I'm not planning to speak to him at all about uh, politics, American politics in Florida, but he does have a perspective on this epical announcement about uh, the war on uh, in Gaza. And it's not a war on Gaza because the uh, only Gaza there is a terrorist group named Hamas, which has been governing by Gaza. And there's also a New York Times report that uh, a they sent in a couple of reporters who actually got interviews with some of the people wanted dead or alive who are leaders of Hamas. And uh, they got a um, 
a, a very revealing set of answers about what it is, what it is that the Hamas was trying to do by its ruthless, incredibly nightmarish attack on uh, southern Israel back on October 7th. Uh, we will get to that. The goal was not to uh, end an occupation. There was been no occupation of Gaza, not since 2005 when the Israelis withdrew. So what was their goal? Uh, we will get to that. Okay, uh, first of all, the uh, uh, news from the Israel-Hamas war, this the coverage in the uh, Associated Press, Israel has agreed to put in place four... Uh, our daily humanitarian pauses. In other words, every day there will be a humanitarian pause in its assault on Hamas in northern Gaza starting today. And one of the things that they're going to do is announce these pauses when there won't be any firing, there won't be any fighting, and uh, people will be able to leave which Israel has been urging people to do to get out of uh, northern uh, Gaza. Uh, they have been urging people to take care of that and to get out of town uh, a long time ago. The uh, uh, Jerusalem Post says that Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, said today that the military was undertaking localized pinpoint measures in Gaza to enable Palestinian refugees to flee the fighting with Hamas in an apparent reference to four-hour pauses announced by the White House. Uh, these things do not detract from the war fighting, Yoav Gallant, the Defense Minister of Israel, said when he was asked by a reporter about the U.S. announcement. Uh, the war would continue until Hamas is eradicated and the hostages held in Gaza are freed, said the Israeli Defense Minister. Uh, meanwhile, in the... Um, um, what the White House has announced, uh, uh, Biden said today that there was no possibility of a formal ceasefire at the moment, and he said it had taken a little longer than he hoped for Israel to agree to the humanitarian pauses, which will be there every day. Biden had asked Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to institute the daily pauses during a Monday call and said that he had also asked the Israelis for a pause of at least three days to allow for negotiations over the release of some of the hostages held by Hamas. And uh, concerning all of these movements, this is a, a, a real surprise, and this is just breaking news just now uh, from the Jerusalem Post. Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is the second biggest terrorist group in Gaza, is willing to release two Israeli hostages they are holding, the terror group spokesperson announced today. Uh, the spokesperson said that an elderly woman and a child could be released. They were later named as Hannah Katsir, who's 77, and Yagil Yaakov, who's 12, uh, both of kibbutz near Oz. Uh, Yaakov was uh, kidnapped alongside his father, and his father's partner and his brother, uh, 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 Orr, who is 16. Okay, so two more hostages released. Uh, why would Islamic Jihad be doing that? 
it's uh, it's complicated, and obviously they, even though they're on the same side, the side of terror and Islamism, uh, they have had a very troubled relationship with Hamas. A national security spokesman, John Kirby, today here back in the United States, said the first daily humanitarian pause uh, would be announced, the timing of it, today, and that the Israelis had committed to announcing each four-hour window at least three hours in advance so that people could take advantage of those breaks in the violence and the fighting. Israel, he said, is also opening a second corridor for civilians to flee the areas that are the current focus of its military campaign against Hamas, with a coastal road joining the territory's main north-south highway. Uh, Similar short-term pauses have occurred over the last several days as tens of thousands of civilians have fled southward, but today's announcement appeared to be an effort to formalize and expand the process as the U.S. has pressed Israelis to take greater steps to protect civilians in Gaza. More on this and revelations about what Hamas's real aims were in launching this war. And how is that war going? We will get to all of that coming up on the MedVet Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Headline in the New York Times today, and it's a, a pretty good bit of a reporting by Ben Hubbard and Maria Abi Habib. Uh, they actually spoke to uh, Yaya Shinwar, who is um, uh, we reported yesterday. The uh, Israeli sources had said that Yaya Shinwar, they've identified where he is, and uh, he's somewhere in the tunnel network. And uh, that uh, he does not have access uh, to escape. So this guy, who was the mastermind, if you can use that term, of the profoundly evil assault on Israel back on October 7th, uh, this guy sat for an interview with New York Times reporters. I mean, okay, and what do they report? Uh, they report Hamas's goal for October 7th, a permanent state of war. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a, a noble goal. That's a, that's a goal worth fighting for, a permanent state of war. Group's leaders say carnage was needed to restore focus on Palestinians. Uh-huh. And that focus has helped Palestinians how? I, I mean, the destruction, and, and even if, as I believe to be true, the, the numbers of uh, dead and wounded that are issued by Hamas are not trustworthy. Uh, there still have been thousands who have been killed, and a tremendous amount of destruction of living space and buildings 
in a, a part of the world that that hasn't been exactly a garden spot, even though, as I've observed on the air before, if you actually look at Gaza and you take a, a Google tour of Gaza, which you can, and uh, you, you take a look at what is above ground other than those nightmarish tunnels, hellish tunnels, uh, Gaza does have a resemblance to Miami Beach. And or okay, at least maybe the city of Miami. Uh, probably that resemblance has been reduced substantially over the last month uh, during the war. Um, okay, a- aside from the complicated situation on the war with Israel, which we're going to be discussing with former Ambassador uh, Ron Dermer, we uh, we're also going to be speaking uh, coming up to uh, Chris Sununu, who's the governor of New Hampshire. And he is one of those people whose name has been floated around as a potential independent candidate for president because he's a strong conservative. He's been a very popular governor. And uh, he is a conservative Republican. He's not a, quote, rhino uh, and uh, a very experienced governor from a very distinguished political family. Both his his brother was U.S. senator, his father was governor, his father was also chief of staff to George Herbert Walker Bush. In any event, uh, Chris Sununu is one of those people who's been talked about as a candidate for either president or vice president with no labels. And that's in the news today because Joe Manchin just dropped a video announcing that, no, he will not seek re-election to the U.S. Senate, which means that in one of the most Republican states in the Union, a state that Trump carried with about 70 percent of the vote, West Virginia, the odds of a Republican, the popular governor in West Virginia, uh, a Jim Justice, Big Jim, uh, his chance of winning the Senate seat, he was already running 13 vo- uh, points ahead of Manchin in the most recent polls. And uh, this is a gimme. And frankly, all they need, the Republicans, is to pick up uh, one Senate seat. If uh, they win the presidency at the same time, well, then they control the U.S. Senate the same way that Biden did in uh, the first half of uh, of of his term before the midterm elections where the Democrats actually uh, gained control by gaining a Senate seat. Uh, here is what Joe Manchin sounded like in his video explaining that he will not seek re-election and hinting very broadly that he will become a candidate for president. Listen. After months of deliberation and long conversation with my family, I believe in my heart of hearts that I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. I've made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. To the West Virginians who have put their trust in me and fought side by side to make our state better, It has been my honor of my life to serve you. Thank you. Okay, he was a governor of West Virginia and popular governor uh, before he was elected to the U.S. Senate. So uh, this is uh, dramatic. Uh, 
And uh, again, it probably does mean that the Republicans have an excellent chance of winning control of the U.S. Senate in 2024. But uh, uh, what it it also means is when he says he, he wants to mobilize the middle, that's the same plan that they have over at No Labels. Now, No Labels, an organization, they have stockpiled about $70 million dollars. They have already gotten a spot on the ballot as if they were a political party because they kind of are. They are going to be holding their convention in April of next year, and they are committed under uh, their announcement of purposes to nominating uh, two people, a presidential candidate and a vice presidential candidate, but one of the uh, candidates would be a Republican and one of the candidates would be a Democrat, which means that if Joe Manchin were nominated for president, then they'd have to find a Republican to nominate as vice president. And uh, the names that you can play with uh, among, I mean, one of the things that <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a nightmare, but Joe Manchin apparently has had a very warm friendship with Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney has already announced he is leaving the Senate of the United States. Uh, would Mitt Romney run together with uh, Joe Manchin? I, I, I certainly would hope not, because that would doom the chance of any Republican to win the presidential race. And one of the things I think that Joe Manchin is going to find when he begins his tour of the country to see whether it's going to be worth his time to, quote, mobilize the middle is uh, that there just may not be that level of support that would make him a credible candidate at all, despite the fact that he's well-known. His uh, approval rating in uh, West Virginia is negative. Uh, 48% disapprove of his performance in the Senate, 42% approve. Uh, he clearly was heading for a loss if he ran for the Senate. And what happens if he runs for president? And where does that go? We'll talk about all of that more coming up with Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire. The Michael Medved Show. MichaelMedved.com Your cultural crusader. At where this is going. All across America. This is the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, we will get to the presidential debate. And as promised, we'll play you some highlights and lowlights. There's just so much else in uh, uh, breaking news. Uh, the uh, uh, NBC News poll that was taken... Uh, last summer, actually, uh, shows that uh, only 11% of registered voters uh, said they had positive views of Joe Manchin. And his presidential campaign shows that if he runs as a uh, candidate for president, some kind of no-labels or independent candidate for president joining 
Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Cornell West, who are both running as independents, uh, he would fit right in <laughs> because one of the factors about all the people who are likely presidential candidates uh, next November, a year from now, they're all hated by the public. No, it's really pathetic. I mean, everybody knows that Biden has a uh, a real problem with having far more people, far more registered voters who uh, disapprove of his job than approve of it. Uh, and uh, when it comes to personal popularity, though, what they found in this um, this NBC news poll uh, Joe Manchin is the least popular political figure in the United States in the new national NBC News poll. Uh, it was actually from a couple of months ago, but it's uh, he had only 11 percent of registered voters saying they had positive feelings about the West Virginia Democrat and 34 percent had negative feelings. That means by three to one, people are more negative about him than positive. Meanwhile, Joe Biden was also overwhelmingly negative uh, by 48 to 40 percent. And almost as unpopular as Manchin was a guy named Donald Trump. He had 18, uh, uh, 36, pardon me, uh, 36 percent of registered voters said they had positive feelings about Trump. Which sounds about right. That's his steady one-third loyalist, the kind of loyalist who jammed his uh, rally in Hialeah, Florida. I, by, by the way, for you out there in the radio audience, I watched most of Trump's speech at Hialeah after I watched the debate last night. And I'll tell you how painful it was. It was the lead-in to his speeches uh, first of all, the best speech of the night was probably Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the uh, new governor of Arkansas, who endorsed Trump. And she was very effective. But he also had Roseanne Barr speaking for him, who was not only obscene and using a lot of language that some of uh, President Trump's more religious supporters might not approve, uh, but uh, she was also admitting this was her first Trump rally and she tried to lead the crowd like a cheerleader in uh saying kill the uh, bs and but she said the actual words and people didn't know if they should cheer along or not and then she said kill the deep state and she showed a a new jacket that uh she had just had made that had a uh a picture of Trump on it as the Magador, not Matador, but the Magador, but dressed up like a bullfighter, and he was putting a sword into the head of a rampaging bull, which didn't represent a bull market on Wall Street, which represented the deep state. In any event, uh, back to uh, Joe Manchin, he... Um, uh, Again, uh, there is a uh, news alert from the Washington Post. And all of this is why I think people like Joe Manchin assume that because our politics is so messed up, 
there might be an opening, a rare opening for a serious third party campaign. Uh, for the second time this year, the U.S. government uh, today began making formal preparations for a possible federal shutdown as hardline House conservatives once again threatened to leave Congress unable to meet a fast approaching fiscal deadline. Uh, when is that deadline? It's uh, nine days from today. I mean, really, it's incredible how this stuff creeps up on you, but it, it does. Uh, in terms of Joe Manchin, again, he uh, is having a problem. And, of course, he has a problem. He's a Democrat in West Virginia and one of the most Republican states. Now, Jim Justice has an opponent who uh, I believe that President Trump has basically blessed both candidates. But there's an opponent named Mooney who uh, is also running for the U.S. Senate, as is the incumbent governor, Jim Justice. And uh, the Democrats uh, can will nominate somebody, obviously, who's from the state legislature, maybe from the congressional delegation. But the chances of them holding the seat in West Virginia are very, very small. Uh, meanwhile, there is other news, and I alluded to this yesterday, and I, I do think it's it's worth pursuing because one of the things that's happened in the country is we seem to be losing faith in all of our institutions. I mean, isn't that a, a factor in the United States? And there is a... Um, uh, a story about a CIA agent who apparently has pleaded guilty for a series of horrifying sexual assaults on as many as 500 different women all around the world. And uh, it's extraordinary that something like this has happened. He drugged them and abused them. And with some of these drugged, uh, knocked out women, he pried open their eyelids. Uh, which I'm not sure what the purpose of all of that is. But uh, this has been uh, apparently a big problem in the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And William Brennan, who is the uh, director of the CIA, is saying, we're going to take care of this, we're going to fix this, we're going to make this better. And the Brian Jeffrey Raymond kept nearly 500 videos and photographs he took of naked, unconscious women including many in which he can be seen opening their eyelids, groping or straddling them, prosecutors said. The images date back to 2006 and track much of Raymond's career with the CIA, including victims in Mexico, Peru, and other countries. The case was just the latest embarrassment for the CIA, which in recent months has seen a reckoning over its often secretive and antiquated handling of sexual misconduct claims within the spy agency. Uh, I, the idea of drugging and then videotaping people and keeping those tapes, making a collection of them, it's pretty horrifying. The CIA has publicly condemned Raymond's crimes. Well, yeah, I mean, what are you going to say? Well, he didn't really mean it. Uh, it's publicly condemned Raymond's crimes. And uh, CIA Director William Burns uh, in May launched a series 
of reforms to streamline claims, support victims, and more quickly discipline those involved in misconduct. As this case shows, we are committed to engaging with law enforcement to ensure that justice is served, the CIA said in a statement. As part of the agreement announced Tuesday, Raymond pleaded guilty to four of 25 criminal counts. It's fairly horrifying. So what happens next politically, and what about that third-party race? We'll talk to the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, coming up. Chris Sununu is the 82nd governor of the state of New Hampshire, and he's currently serving his fourth term Back in 2020, he received more votes than any other candidate in New Hampshire's long and glorious history. And with Governor Sununu's leadership, New Hampshire is ranked number one in the country for personal freedoms by the libertarian-leaning Cato Institute. He has also been named the nation's most fiscally responsible governor by Cato Institute, who has delivered... uh, three balanced state budgets with no new taxes. And in fact, his most recent budget cut some state taxes. And right now, I understand you're spending, is it uh, the day-to-day campaigning with Nikki Haley for President of the United States? Hey, how are you, man? No, I'm not with Nikki today, uh, but I tell you, there's the candidates are coming through. They're definitely coming through. So it's been quite interesting. I always say if people want a front row ticket to the circus, just give me a call. I mean, it's great. It's, they're here. They're doing what they got to do uh, to really connect with folks. Kind of, I, I, I've always said a good someone who does the retail politics well probably needs a good retail manager. And I think that's one of the amazing opportunities we have. Find someone that can talk about national issues, maintain strength internationally, but connect with people on a local level. Connect, you know, kind of drive policies with a strategy to make it operational, something that you and I and our families and our neighbors uh, have it, that actually has an impact in their lives. So that's what it's all about. And so we're spending a lot of time with all the different candidates, but uh, it's been fun. It's been really fun. Did you watch the debate last night? Oh, was there a debate, Michael? Oh, did I, <laughs> I was watching the Celtics. No. Oh, I thought you were watching the Trump rally. The Trump rally went on and on and on. It was a long day's journey into night. Oh, my but, God. I tell you, you get you get Trump off the teleprompter. It's kind of like Biden. You get him off the teleprompter, he'll drone on for an hour and a half. Uh, and not yep, really well, leak anywhere, not really talk about policy, but it just gets like, okay, enough, enough. Okay, so uh, right now you've seen the candidates coming through your state, and, and I, I know that Chris Christie in particular is putting on an aggressive race in New Hampshire, and Nikki Haley is. Uh, of course, uh, Ron DeSantis is a little bit less. Which one of those candidates do you think showed the best retail politics skills that you were just talking about, connecting with people in town meetings and other uh, grassroots kinds of contacts in New Hampshire? Sure. So I, I think Chris Christie does a great job. He's got this kind of big personality. Um, he spent probably the most time here of any of the, those candidates. Um, he, he he spent a lot of he had done it before, right? Because he's run for president before, so he's got a, a good ground game in New Hampshire. I don't know where where the ground game is in, in other states, but he's got a really good ground game here in New Hampshire. I'll be with him at an event tonight. I'm going to introduce him at a town hall. Um, Nikki Haley, obviously, uh, especially since that first debate where she kind of I think she just completely re-energized her campaign. 
um, has been doing a great job. I was at an event with her in Nashua, and she this uh, I found it interesting. She said, hey, raise your hand if you've ever heard me speak before. And only about a third of the room raised their hand. So you had people out the door, most of which had never heard her before. And that's a good sign that they're drawing people in. They're getting their neighbors and friends excited, and they're getting drawn in. And, and while DeSantis hasn't spent as much time in New Hampshire, when he's been here, it's been effective. Uh, we spent a full day together. We did like 10 different stops about two weeks ago. Um, everything from diners to living rooms to barbecues. We were doing a little bit of everything. Um, and, and he's doing, again, doing very well. So those are the top three candidates in New Hampshire. Um, they're having the most impact. Their numbers are moving. Uh, I think, you know, those three actually did the best at the debate last night, right? Uh, and uh, and so I think that's ultimately where this uh, the, the herd kind of calls to a little bit, uh, especially around New Hampshire. And the goal isn't, I mean, the goal should always be to win Iowa and win New Hampshire, of course. They don't have to, though. They really don't. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, if you have someone that can finish consistently second, clearly be the alternative to Trump you make it a one-on-one race before Super Tuesday, and now everything is on. Everything has changed, and, and, and it's really a, a crapshoot. Because Trump will pull about 50%, right, where the conversation is happening. In New Hampshire and Iowa, it's well under. It's more like in the low 40s. So where candidates are break, trying to break through, the numbers are moving. And, uh, you know, if Trump runs the table on Super Tuesday, that, that's it. I think we all agree that uh, you're not going to really come back from that. But if you get to that one-on-one race, um, everything that all these folks that think it's a fait accompli that Trump is the nominee, that gets thrown out the window. And now Trump has to engage. And that's what he's most scared of. He doesn't want to be forced to engage in a conversation, uh, which is, A, a good sign that that shouldn't be your nominee and a good sign that someone else could really take him on. Wow. It's a a great overview. And uh, I, I just see here the RCP New Hampshire average uh, that's real clear politics shows Trump well ahead with uh, Trump at 46 percent in New Hampshire. But that still means that there are 54 percent of the Republican voters, likely Republican voters. And by the way, in New Hampshire, independents can can vote in the Republican primary, too, can't they? That's absolutely right. And independents are always well under polled in primaries. But, but the fact that there, this isn't necessarily – not a lot are going to participate for the Dems, right? Um, the race is on the primary side. So a lot of independents will participate, and they're not voting for Trump, right? So they're going to find one of these other candidates. They're going to see what happens late December, early January, who, who is surging forward. The vast majority of, of base voters still have yet and- to decide. They won't decide till December, maybe, until who they're, who they're waiting for. Are you going to wait till December before you decide? Um, I probably, you know, you know what I do? I kind of, I've been, I've spent, obviously spent more time with them than, than most anybody else. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I'll spend a little time over Thanksgiving as a lot of folks, a lot of us in New England do. We'll, you know, have our, our weird uncle over for Thanksgiving dinner or that annoying cousin or whoever, that in-law, whoever it is, and we'll all talk politics because it's like our fifth, you know, professional sport here in New Hampshire. And, um, yeah, I think sometime in December I'll start saying, okay, let's, let's narrow this thing down and. This is who I'm going to get behind. And as soon as I figure that out, I'll let folks know, and we'll campaign hard for that individual and, and see if we can move the dial a little bit. Yeah, and come back on the show. Uh, let, let me ask you this. Today, Joe Manchin hinted broadly that he is retiring from the Senate. He's not running for reelection for the U.S. Senate. Um, and he is going to be starting a national tour to try to mobilize the middle. 
It uh, sure sounds like he might be going for that no labels thing and running as an independent for president. Uh, do you think he would be a formidable candidate? Uh, look, I think if it's if a if it's a Biden Trump ticket, any third party candidate is going to do well. That is an absolute fact because the polls say that the polls say 70 percent of America is desperate not to have a Biden Trump ticket. Um, if it's not Biden Trump, it's, it wouldn't it wouldn't. The, the, the party. Let me back up a little bit and then we'll get to the third party. The Republicans or Democrats, whoever moves off from their uh, kind of a de- predetermined candidate, if the Republicans move off of Trump first or the Democrats move off of Biden first, that party will win. Right. That party will get people excited, independents excited, showing, you know, that they're willing to talk to the next generation. They're willing to bring in new ideas. They're, they're appreciating that America doesn't want those individuals on the ticket and they're doing what they can to do it. It will it would get very politically rewarded. So that's why I tell Republicans, look at the data, look at the polls, not the primary polls, but look at the fact that if it's not Biden on the ticket, Trump's the only one that loses. That's what the poll numbers say. That Trump is the only one that loses if the <laughs> Democrats move from Biden. And that reality is getting closer and closer every day, especially with that last time Siena poll, right? The Democrat Party saw that poll that says Biden is a loser to everybody. His favorables are in the tank. They're not going up between now and in the convention. So either the Democrat Party will move him off. You have all these shadow campaigns running. I think maybe the Bidens themselves say, you know what, this isn't for us health reasons or, or physical health or mental health, whatever it is, you know, by this time next year, it doesn't look very good. And they're moving. They're they're kind of picking a, a, someone else to to send all their delegates to. There's a variety of ways it can happen. But believe me, Republican Party, it's likely going to happen with the Dems. So we better have the courage to say, hey, thank you, Mr. Trump. You did you did a pretty good job while you were there. But we have to move on or we suffer the fate of 2022 and 2020 and 2018. You know, Vivek Ramaswamy, I thought he did terrible last night in the debate. I thought it was pretty embarrassing <laughs> for him. But Deeply. he did bring up the fact that we, we lost with Trump at the helm in 18, 20, 22. We absolutely lost, and that's on him. Well, why would we do that again? Yeah, I mean, when when you're talking about uh, people doing better than Trump or Biden, in, in that uh, new series of uh, Siena College, New York Times, swing state polls, they also polled Nikki Haley, and she did better. She carried all six uh, swing states uh, uh, with with bigger percentages than Trump. Uh, so she did notably better than President Trump, but uh, we will see what happens. Uh, Chris Sununu, it's great to be talking to you from the uh, perspective of the nation's key first primary state. Yeah, they have caucuses in Iowa, and then they have a primary where people take it very seriously in the great state of New Hampshire. And I uh, take very seriously, I hope, a very bright political future for Governor Chris Sununu, uh, who has made a terrific contribution, not just to his own state, but to this greatest nation on God's green earth.